Um, I just walked by Jessica Britt's chair and I saw a really cool little sign. She didn't give me permission, so I don't think she's in the room. She's probably doing something administrative. But this is really cool. Um, circus, and I think Amani, did Amani King help with this? Is that... Did you draw these? All right, sweet. Um, we have a lot of cool art, in case you're wondering, um, for the kids at Grace Kids, because we want to make it a memorable time for the kids there, so that they're excited about learning about God. So I'm looking forward to that. It's just one little teeny sample. We have lots of different things coming up for the kids at Renew. So if you're not signed up, even though the deadline's passed, let me know. I'll, I'll sign you up and I'll have somebody else get mad at me, I'm sure, but um, that's my prerogative. So, um, <laughs> uh, well, welcome. We are in the middle, actually we just started last week, a series on the book of Titus. And the book of Titus, it's not just, as we heard last week, it's not just a letter. It's, I hate to call it a book because it's only three chapters long. It's a little epistle. But it's not just an epistle that's written to Titus as a pastor so you can check out. But it's a book written really to Titus. But it's really his commission to the church. And it explains what Titus is supposed to be all about and, and how he can serve and care for the church and what the church really needs. And so we're going to be reading the, the next passage in the book of Titus, in Titus 1, 5 through 9. We just did verses 1 through 4 last week. But before I do, I wanted to share a story of a man named Douglas MacArthur with you. Anybody know who Douglas MacArthur was? I hope everybody in the room, hopefully at least has heard, the, everybody's heard the name Douglas MacArthur, right? I hope everybody in elementary ed and up has heard. If not, I would be happy to introduce him to you. He was... Um, he was the head of the U.S. Um, Army Academy, which is also known as West Point. Um, he thought he had retired, and then in 1941, he was recalled to active duty as commander of the United States Army Forces in the Far East. And then through a whole bunch of disasters that followed, starting with the destruction of his air forces. And then on the 8th of December, 1941, the Japanese invaded the Philippines. And his forces were soon compel, um, compelled to withdraw to Bataan. And as he went there, they held out until May of 1942. And then in May of 1942, March of 1942, MacArthur and his whole family, who was there on the base with him, they left by, uh, to, to go to nearby Corregidor Island and PT boats, and then they escaped to Australia, where MacArthur became supreme commander of the Southwest Pacific area. A lot of details. I know a lot of history. Don't check out, though. On his arrival to Australia, MacArthur gave a famous speech in which he, he promised something. He says three words. Anybody know those three words he promised? Exactly right. I shall return. And then after two more years of fighting in the Pacific, he finally fulfilled that promise. And then for his defense of the Philippines, he was awarded the Medal of Honor. He officially accepted Japan's surrender himself. On 2nd of Japan, 1945, aboard the USS Missouri. And then he oversaw the occupation of Japan from 1945 to 1951. And then as an effective ruler of Japan, what most people don't understand is he was actually responsible for most of the success that Japan has today. It started with MacArthur's leadership. And he was the effective ruler of Japan all the way until 1951. And he oversaw sweeping economic, political, and social changes, most of which still remain. You know, by all accounts, he was a great military leader and he was a decent administrator at least because Japan's doing pretty well still. A historian named William Manchester, he once said though of Douglas MacArthur, he said, he was a thundering paradox of a man. How would you like that description of you? He was a thundering paradox of a man, noble and ignoble, inspiring and outrageous, arrogant and shy. It's a weird combination, isn't it? And it's the best of men and the worst of men. The most protean, and I had to look that up myself, versatile, most ridiculous, and most sublime. He says, no more baffling, exasperating soldier ever wore a uniform. Flamboyant, imperious, and apocalyptic. He carried the plumage of a flamingo, could not acknowledge errors and tried to cover up his mistakes with sly childish tricks. 
What a great, what a great biography, right? And he goes on to say, yet he was also endowed with a great personal charm, a will of iron, and a soaring intellect. Unquestionably, he was the most gifted man at arms the United States has ever produced. But you hear a biography like that, and, and you kind of have mixed feelings. Well, he's a great leader, but I don't know if I would have wanted to be friends with him. I don't know if I would have wanted to hang around him. I don't think I want to be like him very much in a lot of different ways. He was bombastic. You know, but what we admire is that he was a leader. He he was a strong leader, a very strong leader, a very opinionated strong leader, but he he led with force. You know, today there is no lack of people who believe that we need good leaders. I think everyone would agree that we need good leaders in the world today, that, that it, it, we have a dearth of good leadership. But what kind of leaders do we need? What kind of leaders does the world need? You know, ones like Douglas MacArthur, maybe ones with, with courage. You think we just need somebody who's an inspirational speaker. We just need somebody who can, who can build a consensus. Or we need someone who doesn't care what people think and somebody who speaks his mind. Sometimes that's dangerous. Others say we need somebody who's good with business or somebody who is adept at running big um, corporations or has a government experience. And then you think what kind of leaders we need in the world today. And then often the immediate effect is to say, you know, well, we need those kinds of leaders in the church as well. But is that the kind of leaders we need? Do we need the same kind of leaders that the world looks for? What kind of leaders are we looking for? What kind of leaders should we look for? What kind of leaders are needed in the church? And is the church leadership to be the same as the leadership of the world? You know, this this passage, it might seem completely irrelevant to everybody in this room if you are A, not a pastor or elder, you don't want to be one, and you don't know anybody who is one. No, you know at least one person who is one. But, you know, passages like this we can really gloss over because this passage in in Titus, it's all about the the qualifications or really the, the character qualities, the evidences of what an elder must live. That's what it's all about. So you think, how in the world can this relate to me? Um, can't we just check out of this period because, hey, I don't ever want to be a pastor. By the way, I know what your job is. I don't, I don't think that's very great and I don't want to do that. Or you know what? Um, I just, I'm not interested. I'm not a pastor, so how does this apply to me? Well, for many reasons, I would encourage you, don't check out for a lot of reasons. One is the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to Titus, but it wasn't because Titus didn't know what his qualifications were and he didn't know what the qualifications of an elder were because he says, as I've already told you. But he wrote this letter so that the church would understand what kind of leaders they need. And not only that, so the church would not only understand what kind of leaders they need, but what kind of people the church are called to be. Because, you know, if you, if you want to have a group of people that you lead exemplify something, if you want them to grow in an area, they can only grow typically as far as you are, by God's grace at least. They can only grow as far as you can lead them. And so and what we see here is what's essential to the life of the church, to everyone in the church, not just as leaders. So let's just read this passage in Titus 1, 5 through 9. This is God's holy word, and it is for us today. Paul writes, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, 
so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help each and every one of us receive from your word. God, would you help us not check out? Would you help us not think that this doesn't apply to us? Would you help us see how this applies to us? Would you help us embrace your good plan for the church? Would you help us pray for those who lead the churches that we're a part of, God? I pray that you would, you would help us all grow in your grace as we see these evidences of a transformed life in the example of elders. God, I pray that you would give us a desire to similarly be transformed by your grace, by your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Paul is really clear, and he, he writes that the church needs elders. It's, it's so pressing for him, it's such a necessity, that it's one of the very first things, right after Paul writes about the hope that we have in the gospel, he writes about the, the grace and peace of God and how we're all part of this common family in the faith. The very first commission he gives to Titus is to put elders in place to appoint elders. It's very clear the church needs leaders and the church needs elders. And then Paul explains, but not the kind that Cretans would be used to. Not the kind of leaders that the world would be used to. The world at that time had a very powerful, very charismatic leader. Most likely, Nero, before he got really bad, was in office. And people got really liked him before he got really squirrely. He was a powerful emperor. And Paul says, you need leaders, you need elders in the church, but you don't need the kind of elders that the world looks to. You need men who demonstrate the transforming power of the gospel by how they live. And so Paul tells him, he says, this is why I left you in Crete. And he says, so that you might put into order what remains and appoint elders in every town. The church was a mess without elders. The church is a mess without godly qualified elders. We need elders in the church. And it seems awfully self-seeking for me to preach on this. And I tell you what, this morning, as I was, I was telling my wife yesterday, I don't really want to preach on a passage about elders. It's a little awkward. But as I began to study, I thought, you know, no, I really want to because this, these character attributes, these qualities, these things that God commands an elder must possess... It's really just because they display the transforming power of the gospel and because it's meant to compel all of us to want to be transformed by the gospel in the same ways. We, we should desire, Lord, would you do these same things in us? And actually, every one of these commands, every one of these evidences that the Apostle Paul gives, they're not unique except for one. They're not unique to elders. I could go to a passage for every command that, that Paul gives what an elder must be. He gives that a Christian must be. So before you check out and think this doesn't apply to me, every time he talks about what an elder must evidence, what an elder must be, he, the Bible gives grounds for why all of us should seek to be that. So why in the world is he talking about this and why does it apply? He wants all of us to understand that elders demonstrate, they're supposed to, they must demonstrate the effects of the transforming grace of the gospel. Because we all need the transforming grace of the gospel. We all need the transforming grace of the gospel. What's, what's the main idea that I want you to walk away with this morning? What, what, what I want you to go out from here is that, you know, yes, elders must evidence the transforming power of the gospel. Sure, I want you to walk away with that. But the big idea is because the transforming gospel is what we need. Why is it that elders need to evidence the transforming grace of the gospel? It's because the gospel is what we need. It's meant to be a compelling example for us to say, you know what, God, by your grace, where all these areas where I'm not like this either, Lord, help me by your grace be transformed. And I pray that's your response this morning. 
And Paul, as he is talking, he, he says, put elders in place. He, he commissions Titus to appoint elders in every town. We don't know exactly how he did that. And so for those of you who come from different church backgrounds, different forms of governance, scripture doesn't mandate or dictate any one form of church government except that a church must be led by elders. And that a church needs deacons, people who administrate and, and lead in, in caring and doing administrative duties of the church. In this passage, he makes it clear the church needs elders. It needs people to lead. And I, and I like that it's plural. That's, that's for our protection, for our good. There is to be a plurality. It's not a magical number, just more than one is plural. So there, there needs to be elders in a church, in any given church. And, and sometimes there's church plants where you can only have one. But the idea is to get to that place. It's not a command. You must have that. But there's a general precedent that he's writing plurally. They're not some weird class of people. Did you notice? He says, appoint them in every town. Where does he get these people? Are these weird people? I mean, maybe, maybe I'm weird, right? You know, we're all weird in our own way. Maybe, maybe you've known a lot of weird pastors. But the reality is, is that we're just people appointed by God, called by God, to represent the transforming effect of the gospel to the church. There's nothing special. It's not a separate class of people. Don't ever think that way about any elder or pastor. This is not a higher order of person. This is not a separate class of person. This is not somebody um, who, you know, they were born different. This is someone who, by God's grace, is privileged to be able to serve the church, demonstrating and proclaiming the transforming power of the gospel through both their life and their words. So they're not weird, they're not different, it's not a different class. We're people just like you. And he delegates this authority to Titus, who apparently was at least an elder and probably an apostolic delegate. And he delegates this authority to Titus. We don't know how he appoints them. You know, we don't know if Titus just said, hey, that guy's got character, that guy's got character, and they became elders. We don't know if he interviewed people, if the church participated in some way. We don't know exactly how that worked. But we know that elders were appointed by elders. That's what we do see. And so we have that precedent in our church of elders appointing elders. But you know what elders is? It's a, desi- a delegated authority. It's also derived from the church. If, if the church doesn't support an elder, then he's not really an elder. If the church doesn't say yes, we can give evidence that he gives evidence to these things, then they're not qualified to be an elder. That's why as a church, we, we both... As, as elders, Aaron and I, we, we would appoint a, a new elder. However, we wouldn't do that without the consent, without the agreement of this congregation, this body. No matter how it happens, though, Titus needed to appoint elders. And, and the question is, what kind of people, what kind of elders are needed? You know, is it just a charismatic personality? Is this a type A personality? You know, a, a lot of church groups, they have a specific type of leader that they appoint as elders. And it seems that, you know, every church in that denomination has the similar feel. I don't, I don't want us ever to be like that in our church. I, I hope that um, however many elders we end up having in the end, and I hope we have several more elders in the next year or so, I, it's my prayer. But, you know, Aaron and I are very different. You know, he's not what you would call a type A personality, and that's really good. You know, the differences in elders and why we have multiple elders, because by the grace of God, different giftings, different abilities enable different kinds of ministry to different people. So Paul gives us some of the qualifications. It's not type A personality. It's not somebody who's really good at delegating, somebody who's been a CEO of a corporation or somebody um, who's really good with lists or somebody who's you know, really great with finances, although you hope that elders have some proficiency or are able to find people with those proficiency to do that ministry. But So this isn't an exhaustive list, but he gives the primary, the most important qualifications for an elder. And then he addresses the issue of local church leadership in detail four times. God, God addresses local church leadership four times in the New Testament. And in each of those passages, it is primarily all about character. And in this passage, of the 16 attributes of an elder, 16 evidences that an elder must give in his life that he must demonstrate, he must have, of those 16, 15 of them out of the 16 are character And by the way, the exact same character that is called for in every believer. 
So as you're hearing, hey, these are the qualifications for an elder, think, you know what? That's because these are what all of us are to strive towards. Not, not for merit, but because God by his grace has saved us, not of works, not because of our works, but because of his grace he saved us so that we can become more like him. He saved us to works by faith. All of these things, I, th- I think it's really remarkable. The remarkable thing about each and every one of these attributes that we, we just read is that none of them are spectacular. You know, it doesn't say that he's got to have wild charisma. He's got to be a really good marketer. He has to have, you know, skills in these massive areas. Nope, these are just examples of the godliness that the gospel produces in one's life. Out of, the, out of the 16 things, 15 of them are just examples of the transforming power of the gospel in one's life. And why do we have these? We have these because we're all called to seek to be transformed. God has made us new and then, and then we're to continually be transformed. There's a command in scripture in Romans 12, 1 and 2. He says, be transformed by renewing your minds. So as you're hearing these qualifications, think, okay, these are the same things that I need to be transformed into as well. And by God's grace, because of the power of the gospel, I have faith that is possible. You know, why, why do we have this list at all? You know, didn't, didn't people already know what kind of leader we need? Isn't it evident what kind of leader you really need? And I'd say, no, it's really not. It never has been to people. In, in the Old Testament, the people of Israel, they really thought they needed a charismatic, studly leader. And so you see that they had the prophet Samuel leading them. And, and Samuel, you know, he wasn't that impressive. He just heard from God. He just spoke God's words, right? But he wasn't really impressive. He wore robes. He kind of acted weird, did weird things. Samuel wasn't that impressive in their minds. And so they cried out and they said, give us a leader like the nations, right? Give us a leader like the world has. Give us the kind of leader the world has who is charismatic, who will be strong, who will represent and so they appealed, and God says, you know, I'm going to give them the kind of leader they want to show them the kind of leader they need. And so he gives them Saul. And at first, Saul looks really good. Scripture actually describes Saul as standing literally head and shoulders taller than anybody else. He was impressive. He was physically inspiring. He, he was imposing I've gotten to meet a couple presidents in, in my life, and, and it's funny because we tend to have presidents who are taller and more imposing. You know, Reagan was this tall, imposing man. Bush was this, although you don't know it, Bush Sr., he was a tall, imposing man. Clinton was a tall, imposing man. And so there are these figures of, of, who are tall, who are imposing, and, and Saul was that. And so they're like, yeah, that's the guy, because we look on the outside. That's what we tend to do. We tend to look on the outside for what we want to emulate, what we want to be like. So our leaders are actually meant to exemplify what we want to be like. And so God says, well, here's the kind of leader you really need. And so he gave them Saul. And so, you know, not only does it say Saul was head and shoulders above everybody else, it says something else that's really kind of funny in Scripture. He said of Saul, where was it? Um, yeah, in, in 1 Samuel 9, 2, he says, he was a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. You know, he was Gaston. <laughs> and, uh, that's a reference, sorry, <laughs> The Beauty and the Beast. If, for those of you who haven't seen it, you can go and watch it. And, and um, I apologize in advance. It's an awful movie. But my kids love it. My kids love it. I'm sorry. It's, it's a wonderful story. I repent right now. Saul was better than Gaston. He was more handsome than anyone else in the whole nation. And they thought, that's the guy, kind of leader we need. One who looks good. One who can speak. One who's tall and imposing. He's a manly man. And we read that Saul, sooner after that, he sought to take matters into his own hand. He didn't trust God's word. He disobeyed God. He thought that he could offer an acceptable sacrifice on his own before God out of expediency. And so God says, you know what? No, no. I'm going to replace him with a king of my own, a king who is a man after my own heart. That was the kind of leader they needed, but they didn't see that to begin with. 
You know, in the New Testament, it wasn't much different, right? In the New Testament, what kind of leader did the people think that Jesus should be? Any, any ideas what kind of leader do they think he should be? You can shout it out. We'll interact today. And I was like, whoa, are we supposed to say something here? Right, a conqueror, a military leader, a warrior. Somebody who could kick out the Romans. Somebody who would dominate. Somebody who would rule with an iron fist. They thought the Messiah needed to be a military, political savior to rescue them from the Romans. What they really needed was a leader who would take their place and rescue them by laying down his life for them. That's the kind of leader we need. Ultimately, all elders are meant to point to the great elder, the great shepherd. That's the kind of leader we need. That's the kind of leader whose image we are being transformed into day by day. The disciples, though, they didn't get it, right? They didn't get what kind of leader they needed. You know, Peter actually was like, no, Jesus, you're wrong. You're not going to suffer and die. Let me, let me really inform you what kind of leader we need. Right? Because we think we know best, and we think that we need the kind of leader that the world has. And what we need is a Messiah, Jesus, who can serve us who humbles himself and gives his life up for us by dying on the cross. And then God vindicated himself by showing that Jesus really was who he said he was and that Jesus was raised back to life just like he said, showing that the kind of leader we really need is the kind of leader Jesus was. Now no man can ultimately attain that. No man can ultimately live up to that. But all of us are to strive to be like Jesus. And that's why we need leaders who exemplify some of those same traits. You know, what God says we need in the church are elders who lead by example, who, who follow Jesus and hold fast to the faithful word as proclaimed. You know, we need men who follow the great shepherd. The only qualification I have is that by God's grace, the gospel has transformed me and I can point to areas where his grace has been at work in my life and then I can point to the fact that I understand the gospel and I have a passion and a desire and ability to transmit and to communicate that to you. How I dress, what I look like, how I speak, how charismatic I am is irrelevant to some degree. Now those things are helpful, but they're not the primary qualifiers. And so what does God want us to hear this morning? He's, he wants us to hear that elders must evidence, elders must evidence the transforming power of the gospel because the transforming power of the gospel is what we need. You know, ultimately, we rely on him and follow him as the leader. And but, but Paul, he wants us to see what does it look like to be, be transformed by God's grace into the image of Jesus, at least in, flawed, in, in part, in, in a flawed man, in flawed men. And so he lays out these different evidences. And, and, you know, you can, you, uh, in the book of Titus, you can read Titus wrong because Titus gives so many commands. I mean, Paul gives so many commands to Titus. He gives these commands about what an elder must be. And they think, oh, no, this is all about a checklist. And so we have to earn God's favor. But that's not at all what he's saying. In light of the hope that we have, because we have grace and peace, his power in the gospel transforms us to result in these behaviors. It's not to induce legalistic behaviorism. It's meant to show God's grace transforms every aspect of our lives and he calls us to live for him in every area of life. As we go on through these, I want you to listen and think, okay, does this apply to me? Does this attribute apply? Is this something I can say? Is this something where God's transforming grace has been at work in my own life? And if not, why not? And, and let me seek to submit myself to the grace of God and be changed by his grace. You know, when an elder is called what he's called to be, it shows the power of the gospel is real and tangible. That's what it shows us, it, that it affects even the most main, mundane areas of our lives. That's what it's meant to show us. There's a guy named Kent Hughes. He's a pastor. He's older. I don't know if he, I think he's close to retirement by now. Um, he, he shared something. He says, until one assumes the responsibilities of a church leadership, I think we have the quote for you up there. There may be no real awareness of how messy are the lives of so many people in our churches for whom God makes us responsible. Beneath their surface courtesies, and by the way, listen to the hope that this is if you find yourself in these categories. 
Beneath their surface courtesies, many people are burdened by dissatisfying marriages, enslaved to lusts and addictions, entangled in patterns of thought and habit that they desperately hope but can hardly imagine they can escape. They're ensnared in dead-end pursuits of money and power that control their lives without satisfying their souls. Such persons are desperate for the incarnation of the gospel in the lives of church leaders. A godly example, here's the point, a godly example demonstrates not that elders are more deserving of grace than others, but that one, that one is Jesus, by the way, who is in us is more powerful than the one who is in the world. Godly leadership proves that freedom from the slavery of sin and selfishness is, is possible. And even when your elders in this church, when I sin and repent, that's meant to show the transformative power of the gospel. So Paul gives us three main categories that elders must evidence. He shows us three main areas that el- elders must evidence the transforming power of the gospel because that transforming power of the gospel is what we need. And, and the first evidence that we're going to see, it's really in, in verse 6 and 7. Or actually verse 6, sorry. It's just the evidence of godly commitments. It's the first evidence an elder must demonstrate. The evidence of godly commitments. And I wonder, where, where, where am I getting that? Well, he's talking about that elder's commitments to his family, to his wife, and to his children. And, and you think, well, why is he talking about that? Does that mean that every elder must be married? No, he's talking about the norm in that culture, the norm in our culture today is that most people end up getting married, most elders end up being married, and if they are married, here's the kind of marriage they're going to have. But before he talks about marriage and family, he begins with saying they must be above reproach. And then he explains in their commitments, he must be above reproach. Now to be above reproach, that that means not that somebody is completely free from sin and that people don't speak badly of them. Another word for that is blameless. Now that doesn't mean perfect. It means no, no one can blame them legitimately, have legitimate grounds for blame. It doesn't mean that I'm perfect, that Aaron's perfect, that any other elder is perfect. What it means is we don't give cause for accusation. You know, it doesn't mean that people don't accuse or don't think badly. It means there's no just cause for that. And if you think about it, the Apostle Paul is writing this, and he was accused of being a rabble rouser. The Apostle Paul himself, he, he was accused of being fickle and foolish, of being a violator of the Jewish law. The Apostle Paul, he was accused in, in different letters of being overly weak and timid. And he's not a very good speaker. I think Paul was a pretty decent elder, though. You know, when he speaks, I don't really get anything out of it. He's not this great public orator. He's not so good with his words. He doesn't look so impressive. He's probably pretty small. He's got some physical deformities from what we see in Scripture. Mm. And then other places, he's seen as being overly harsh. The Corinthians had some problems with Paul. They thought he was harsh. But you know, Jesus was even wrongly accused of many things. He was completely holy. He never sinned. Both Paul and Jesus, they were above reproach. Now, now Jesus was the only one who was perfect. But you know, the Pharisees said about Jesus, they said he was a drunk. He was a glutton. You know, this man who eats and drinks with, with sinners, he's, he's demon-possessed. Something's wrong with him. He's insane. He's a blasphemer of God. And yet Jesus bore our reproach. So being above reproach doesn't mean that people don't say bad things. I mean, there's no right cause for that. So an elder must be above reproach. And the the first example, and by the way, Jesus told us, he says, blessed are you when people hate you in Luke 6, 22, right? Isn't that that a great word for the day? You know, blessed blessed are you when people hate you when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil. Does that contradict? No, it doesn't contradict this passage. It means if they do it on account of the Son of Man, meaning there's no reason for it except that you're upholding the name of Jesus. Being above reproach, it it means that you're not giving cause for people to think badly of Jesus in the gospel, to think badly of the church. 
Ask yourself the question for your own life personally. Is my life above reproach? Do I give any cause in what I look at, in, in what I watch, in what I listen to, in how I act, in how I speak, in how I treat my neighbors, in how I speak about other people? Do I give any cause for the reproach of others? How am I reflecting the name of Jesus that I profess? How am I reflecting the fact that I am a child of God? Am I demonstrating is my own life above reproach? He says, if anybody's above reproach, not perfection, but it means that when we sin, we confess our sins, we turn from them, we seek to live differently. We don't demonstrate a life that's anti-gospel. And then he explains what that looks like. What does it look like to be above reproach? What it looks like to, to evidence godly commitments. And, and then you see the second half of verse six says, the husband of one wife. Now, he's writing to people who in that culture, polygamy was not a problem. So why does he write that? Well, the, the literal translation, the literal words are, he's a one woman man. A one woman man. This means that he doesn't have eyes for anybody else. He's faithful. He doesn't look at any other woman. He doesn't look for satisfaction anywhere else. He doesn't, he, no other woman has a place in his heart and his mind. And he doesn't relate to any other woman as if she is his wife. He's a one woman man. That's the kind of man, this kind of elder that we need in the church. And you know why? Because Jesus was that kind of man. Jesus wasn't married. But you know what Jesus calls the church? He calls the church his bride. He was a one woman man, a one bride. He came for his bride. He died for his bride. He was resurrected for his bride. And by the way, he's interceding for his bride. Jesus is all about the bride. That's why the elder is to be a one woman man to reflect the faithfulness of Christ. That's why though in Paul in Ephesians, by the way, this doesn't just apply to elders, this applies to all of us. In Ephesians, Paul writes about husbands and wives and how husbands are to love their wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Seeking to present the church, the bride spotless before God. Men, are you one woman men? Do you exemplify Jesus? That's what we're all called to. We're called to exemplify the fact that Jesus loves us and he loves us in an undying love that's not fickle, that's not unfaithful. And that's really good news. Jesus is always faithful in his love to us. He never forsakes us. He never kicks us out of the house. He, he, he never divorces us. And so all of us, not just elders, but everyone is to demonstrate the love of Jesus in, in our marriages. Not only that, he goes on to say, his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery and subordination. That passage, that, that phrase has caused no end of consternation for a lot of elders. For me, I have uh, six kids. I had to count for a second. I had six kids. Um, they all have birthdays, except for one, between July 1st and August 23rd, I think, right? Is that, is that true? August 17th, sorry, July 23rd, August. See, I'm, so in a six-week period, five of my six had birthdays, but um, of my six children, I'm pretty certain the first four are believers. I'm, I'm, well, as far as we, I can know, they've all made a credible profession of faith. They've all seeking to follow Jesus with their hearts. Um, they are demonstrating the, the fruits of the Spirit. And so um, I can commend them and say, yes, they're doing a great job. They're pursuing being like Jesus. They're not perfect. They still sin just like me, just like their dad. But they, they show that they need a Savior and they repent. And there's good evidence is there. But you know what? The last two, I'm not so sure. I'm pretty sure they're unbelievers. You know, I don't know their hearts, but um, I know their behavior. I know they need help. You know, my, my youngest is four, and she is so sweet and so corrupt. <laughs> my other is, boy is seven. I, he might be a believer. I'm not sure. But boy, when he gets angry, he gets really angry. But we're working with him. You know, he comes around. They're both obedient generally. 
They both obey, they both repent, they both, they both comply, um, they both submit, but they're not Christians yet. So what does this passage mean when it says the children are believers? Well, I think the second half of the, the phrase actually describes that. And, and by the way, the, his children are not believers, uh, or, or I'm sorry, his children are believers. That, that, that's just translating two Greek words that just, if you were to make them literal translation of just those two words of that phrase, that it would literally mean either having faithful, holding reliable, or keeping trustworthy. And so people are trying to figure out, well, what does it mean, having faithful, holding trustworthy, keeping reliable? What does that mean? And so people translated that to children are believers. I don't think that's the best translation. I think, I think the second half of the sentence explains that. And by the way, so does 1 Timothy 3 that also gives a list of the qualifications of elders that's exactly parallel, except here it says they're not rebellious. They're not, they're not open to, they're not insubordinate. No, nobody can, the other thing is that scripture is consistent. No one can make their children Christians as much as we want to. And I think a lot of doctrines have, have, have sprung up in the church out of a desire because I really want to be sure that my, my children are going to be believers. And, and so we really want that desperately and I wish there were some way to assure that my kids would be Christians. But you know what? Each and every person must respond to God in faith and belief. It doesn't keep me from praying for them, but I can't mandate the outcome. I can't make my kids be Christians. And so both from the text, this context, from 1 Timothy and other parallel texts, and then also from the testimony of Scripture, I think what it means here, and he explains it, not open to the charge of debauchery and subordination. That's what it means. They must, be, they must be faithful. Hold faithful. Stay faithful. Remain trustworthy. Meaning, don't reject the teaching of their parents. And generally, don't be insubordinate. Don't not be ongoing debauchery. Live a lifestyle that's in rebellion. If my kids were to live an ongoing lifestyle of rebellion of where they were living in debauchery, spurning continually, not submitting, then I would not be qualified to be an elder. By God's grace, I am grateful for my children. Only two of them are sitting here, but I am grateful for my children that by his grace, by and large, they are very submissive. I also pray they become believers too. He goes on, he says, um, an elder is also a steward. An elder is a steward. So in his relation, in his commitments, he must be faithful. He must be faithful to his wife. He must be faithful to his lead and care for his family. And by the way, the only way for that to happen is through a lot of work. There's no guarantee of that outcome that my kids won't be rebellious or insubordinate, but if we are to be qualified to lead the household of God, then we have to be able to teach our own children what it looks like to live as members of his household. Otherwise, I wouldn't have the ability to to say, yes, this is what it looks like to submit to Jesus. We see the second category of evidence. Not only must an elder display faithfulness and commitments and God be a godly commitments in his marriage and his family. He's, he's also a good steward, a steward. What does that mean? It, 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 it means that he evidences godly character. That's the second point. He, the, the elder must evidence godly character. And by the way, these are things that we're to evidence too. We're to evidence godly commitment. We're to evidence godly character. Everyone in the church, you're to evidence godly commitments, godly character. And so elders are to set the stage for that, to give evidence of those things. You know, my wife and I, we enjoy watching mystery shows and cop shows. And, you know, I, I am not a guy who likes watching sappy dramas. I can't stand those kinds of things. Um, you know, people are like, oh, I love pride and prejudice and sense and sensibility. I'm like, you have no sense. <laughs> uh, I respect it. It's good art, and I respect people who like it. Don't be offended. I, I respect you. That's what makes the church wonderful. We have all kinds of differences. I love that people like frilly, frou-frou things, but me, I like mysteries. I like, I like when they have a show where somebody's committed a crime, and I've got to figure it out. You know, maybe that's a flaw in my character because I like to feel smart. No, I figured it out before they revealed it. But you know what? They're all, re they're all written that way. I mean, that's why people watch it, to make us feel good about ourselves. 
But you know, you're, you're looking for evidences. You're looking for clues. Like, I don't know, that person might have done it. What about this person? It might have been the clown because he's a drunk, you know, or whatever. <laughs> so, sorry, it's a show we I just had in mind that we just recently watched. But anyway, so the drunk clown didn't do it, by the way. It was the upstanding son. He did it. And I didn't know till the very end. But you look for these evidences. You look for evidences in, in shows. And you like that. You look for evidences because they confirm what's true. And so Paul here, he's giving us evidences of godly character. It's not godly character doesn't make you a Christian, but godly character is the evidence of a Christian. And so as an elder who leads Christians, elders are to give evidence of godly character. You should be able to tell as flawed and as imperfect as I am, and I am very flawed, very imperfect. We could sit down afterwards, I could give you a laundry list. But you should be able to tell, you know what? There are evidences in the elders' lives that there's godly character or a pursuit of godly character. There's growing in godly character. Why? Because we need those so that all of us grow in godly character. All of us give evidence of the the fruit of the gospel. And he gives some of these evidences. And one of the first things is that an elder doesn't view himself as the owner of God's people. I hate it. And that's a strong word. I hate it. And, and my little kids would freak out because they're not allowed to say they hate something. I hate it when people say, you know, um, I, I heard somebody saying, and I'm not criticizing anybody here, but why I hate it, I'll explain in a second. Um, and, and, and by the way, Christian freedom, please say, but when somebody says, you know, where do you go to church? I go to Reunion Grace Church. Oh yeah, that's Matt Rawlings Church. I'm like, oh no, please don't ever say that. It's not my church. I, it is my church in the sense that I go here, that I'm a, I'm a member of the church, that I'm a part of the church. So if you mean that way, like, just like it's your church and your church and your church, then sure. But if you mean somehow that this is Matt's church, that is wrong. You see, I'm just a steward. This is as God's steward. And you think about what a steward is, especially in this context in the Old Testament and the New Testament both. They, a steward was somebody who the owner would hire to manage, to take care of his household, to take care of his business, to take care of things in his place. But it was only a delegated authority. It was a derived authority. Sure, stewards have authority, but really it's just because they're representing the one who owns the house. And they don't go further than the authority of the one who owns the house. For me as an elder, I'm just a steward. We're just stewards. Any elder is just a steward. And if any elder says that he has authority more than that, that is scary, go. The only authority I have is the authority of God's word. My commission, if you will. God's word. That's my boundaries. I can only speak with authority where God's word speaks with authority. I'm a steward. And you know what? All of us are stewards of God's very grace. That's what he calls all Christians. This is not unique to elders. We've all been given the grace of God. Now, as elders, we've been given unique responsibility to steward, it says, the household of God. That is daunting. That is humbling. You are the household of God, and all I am is a steward. I'm God's steward of you. You are the precious household of God. You are the people of God. You are the ones for whom Christ died and what a privilege it is to be a steward. And all of us are called to be stewards of the gifts that God has given to us, stewards of the things that God has given. Is that evident in your life, that you're a steward? Secondly, he says he must not be arrogant. That's pretty evident. Doesn't mean that elders won't ever be proud or say anything prideful. Just means pride and arrogance don't define them. Not to be conceited, puffed up, ruled by the praise of others. Positive way of saying that is an elder is to seek to be humble. Why? Because Jesus is the ultimate example of humility. And actually, he, he commands all Christians in Philippians 3. He says, he says um, I think Philippians 3, <laughs> I just got the reference wrong, about having the same mindset that, that Jesus had to put on humility, just like Jesus humbled himself. He says he must not be quick-tempered. Why is that? Well, because God is patient and slow to anger. 
abounding in steadfast love. And, and by the way, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, God is not angry with you and he is not quick-tempered with you. He is not angry with you. That's good news. And then elders are to demonstrate the patience of God. You know, I get angry, but I hope that doesn't characterize my life. You know, we've all been around angry people who just seem to be angry all the time. You must not be that way. Are we seeking to demonstrate the patience, the kindness of God and being slow to anger? And that's, that's something all of us are called to. And he goes on, he says, not, not be a drunkard or violent. And those two words are linked together. So I think closely because oftentimes when people are drunkards, they're violent, but it doesn't, it's not exclusive, it's both. Why is that? Because we show our dependency is on the Holy Spirit. And, and the whole command to every believer and that the elder is supposed to exemplify is don't be drunk with wine. And by the way, it's not limited to wine only, by the way. You don't think, well, I'm good with beer because this ain't wine. I can drink Jack Daniels because he said don't be drunk with wine. I can be drunk with Jack Daniels. That's not what scripture means. Scripture is saying don't be drunk. And that drunkenness applies to drugs as well. Don't have your mind in an altered state where you're relying and looking to those things to satisfy you, to take the edge off, to, to get you peace or relaxation. Don't be a drunkard. Don't be like that. Why? He says instead you need to seek to be filled with the Spirit. Now it's not this passage, but that's all Christians. Don't be drunk with wine. Be filled with the Spirit. Don't look for satisfaction in those things. Be satisfied in and with the Holy Spirit. Look to him to take your edge off. And so elders need to exemplify that, not be drunkard or violent. That's pretty explanatory, but the word for violence there could also mean quarrelsome. In in 1 Timothy 3, Paul writes, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome. If somebody is known to always be arguing with other people, they are quarrelsome. I think that's the spirit behind that. They're not qualified. If somebody is always playing the devil's advocate, always bringing up the contrary point of view, then I would submit you are quarrelsome and it doesn't exemplify the kind of humility called for. <laughs> By the way, what a great phrase that is. You know, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just playing the devil's advocate, really. Uh, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I'd rather advocate for God. It doesn't mean we can't have strong opinions. It doesn't mean elders don't have strong opinions, that we can't hold them strongly if they're based on biblical convictions, it just means we must not be violent about them. We must not be arrogant about them. So do we demonstrate our dependency on the Holy Spirit or what do we demonstrate our dependency on? And then he goes on, he says, we're greedy for gain. Why? It demonstrates who we're trusting in, what we're trusting in. Are we living for eternal treasures or are we living for the treasures of this world? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So this passage applies to each and every one of us, not just to elders, but elders must exemplify that they are not greedy. They're not marked by greed. It doesn't mean that I never struggle with greed, but that doesn't mark my life. Greedy for gain. Thinking that somehow satisfaction lies in getting rich. Why? Because it demonstrates trust in God and living for eternal treasure. Are are you likewise seeking to trust in God and live for eternal treasures or are you marked by being greedy for gain? I was gonna share 1 Timothy 6, 9. It talks about, it says, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation to a snare and to many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. It says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. If that's you, hear the warning. You don't want to wander away from the faith because you love money. Hebrews 13.5 says, keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. If you have under, ever wondered, why in the world does it say keep your life free from the love of money? And then right after that, it says... Be content with what you have. Okay, that's fine. I understand that. Then it says, for he said, I'll never leave you and forsake you. How is that related? Well, he knows, the writer of Hebrews knows, God knows, if we are wanting money and we are discontent, what we are saying in our hearts is that God is not enough, that Jesus is not enough for us. That that surely, if we're not being blessed financially, then God must have left us. 
God must not be with us. He must not really care about us. He must have abandoned me. And he says, no, here's how you can keep your life from the free money. Remember, he said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. You can be secure and content in him. You don't have to love money. He goes on with some other qualifications for elders. He says, but be hospitable. What does that mean? And the literal word means stranger loving. And not in a weird way, but somebody who opens their lives up to strangers, who opens up themselves to strangers, who is giving, self-giving, and hospitable to people that are not like them. Why is that a qualification for an elder? Why? And by the way, you know, Scripture, I think it's, I think it's three other places, three other places in Scripture in Romans 12, in, in Hebrews 13, and in 1 Peter 4, three places in Scripture where it commands all believers to practice hospitality. Did you know that's a command for, for believers? It's not just a suggestion. Oh, you know what? I need to practice hospitality. Oh, gee, we've been pretty bad at this. No, no. Hey, wait a minute. This is an evidence of the transforming power of the gospel that makes selfish people who care about what people think about us say, you know what? I'm going to get over that. I'm going to sacrifice my preferences for other people. And this is how I'm going to do that is actually by practicing hospitality. Because you know what? There's no better way to put to death what people think about your housekeeping than to have people into your house. And then here's the trick. Don't clean up everything. <laughs> don't go through hours and hours trying to make your house spotless. Have people over to your house like it normally is. That'll test your character of whether you have hospitality that's open, if it's for other people's good or, or not. I'm saying don't, like, don't go making a mess. I mean, don't, don't make it so that people don't want to come to your house because it's such a wreck. But we're to practice hospitality as elders and then as the whole church because you know why? Jesus welcomed us when we were strangers. He was stranger loving. And it's the heart of God to welcome those who are distant through the welcome of Christ. That's what we're to show as elders and as people, the welcome of Christ. He goes on, a lover of good just means that we should love what is good. We love seeing good be done. We love doing good. It doesn't mean we're goody, goody two-shoes, but we love to see good things being done because God is a good God and he's the author of good. And so when we do good, it reflects the goodness of God. And he goes on, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. I think the phrase, the whole phrase goes together. You know, we're not controlled by our emotions. We're not to be controlled by our lusts, ruled by our desires or ambitions. Live a life that's upright, holy, disciplined. Upright, it's about I care about righteousness and justice. I seek to uphold justice in our lives. We, we seek to, to be holy, to be set apart, to be devoted to God. Uh, do, do we know that those, those are things that it says of every Christian is to be upright, to be righteous, to, to be holy? God commands us to be holy as I am holy. Not only that, it says Disciplined. The self-discipline knows how to order his life. Generally, his life's not out of control all the time. He's seeking to, to get his own desires under control, to grow in godliness. Could, could that be said of, of elders? And, and, and can that also be said of all of us? You know, everybody lacks discipline to some degree. But if that characterizes your life, that reveals a problem that you're being led by your emotions, you're being led by your desires, by your lust, you're being led by your situations and circumstances instead of saying, you know what, I'm not gonna be led by those things. I'm going to discipline myself and we'll get to this later for the purpose of godliness. I'm gonna submit my will to God's. Now, I'm not gonna fly by the seat of my pants. I'm gonna live in a way that's submitted to the will of God in general. You know, God's an orderly and good God doesn't mean that we all have to like plan out every moment of the day and we have to be robots and automatons no you can actually be spontaneous but it means you can you need to be disciplining yourself saying i want to submit my life to living the way that god says i should live lastly in addition to giving evidence of godly commitments godly character and evidence that the elder must give is evidence of godly convictions he must hold firm it says to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. He has to give evidence of godly convictions. And, and, and I think I shared with you, at least last week or a few weeks ago, that you know, I used to rock climb, and before I damaged my shoulders from doing that, but I used to rock climb, and uh, the very first time that I went with, I went with a guy named Roger, and Roger was this slight little guy who didn't look very impressive, but he was like one of the best climbers I've ever met. 
And he said, you know, the first thing we're going to do is not climb. The first thing we're going to do is I'm going to teach you not be afraid of heights and to repel. I'm like, uh, yeah, I want to start, start climbing. He's like, no, you can't do that. I, I want you to, to lower yourself down over the cliff first. That's what you have to do first. You got, you got to do that. And so he sets up these anchors and he puts this harness on me and I, and I set up. And then I realize there's this carabiner and there's this little device and it's just a little, oh, it is a little loop. And so the rope comes through the carabiner, through the loop here, and then it comes out. I'm like, well, how's that going to hold me? You know, what's going to happen there? Because there's no knot. You know, I'm not like, not knotted in. I'm like, well, you're not going to lower me down? No, you actually lower yourself down. And if you, if you just hold onto the rope in front of you, there's going to be a problem. You're, it's going to burn your hand. You're not going to be able to do it. And you lower yourself down, but you take the rope and you put it behind your back with one hand. And that's how you lower yourself down over the cliff. And so I remember the very first time, and I'm, I'm standing there right at the edge of the cliff, and I'm looking down, I'm like, oh, this far. And, and I'm like, I don't know if I'm comfortable doing this because the only person holding me is me. And what if my hand gives out? Or, or what, if, what if I let go for a second? And he's like, well, then you'll be dead. Like, that's not encouraging. And he's like, well, just hold firm. Well, 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 that's easier said than done. He's like, you know, you don't have to like have Herculean grip. You just have to hold it firm and then pull it behind you. And that friction alone is enough to, to hold you, to keep you. And then when you want to get let down, I'm like, well, then I'm never going anywhere because I'm never letting go of that rope. And he's like, well, no, you have to, you know, you, you, your hold firm doesn't mean that you're always in control, really. But it means, you know what, I'm holding on to something. I'm not letting go. An elder must evidence holding firm to the trustworthy word is taught. And everywhere the Apostle Paul talks about the trustworthy word, what he's talking about is the word of the good news of Jesus Christ in the gospel. An elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught. Why? Because all of us need to hold firm to the gospel. There's a guy named Jerry Bridges who talked about preaching the good news, the gospel to yourself. Every day we have to hold firm. Why? Because we perish if we don't. We fall apart. Our lives are a mess. Now, ultimately, if you're a believer, I don't mean you can lose the gospel and you perish in that sense. Um, you, if you've been saved by the grace of God, you can be sure he's going to keep you faithful to the end. He's holding you. But you know what? In our lives, we need to hold on firmly to the trustworthy word of the gospel. And elders are to do that and exemplify that and be an example of hey, you know what, life gets scary for us too, but we're to hold on to the word as taught so we can instruct in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. Why? Because our hope is in this trustworthy word. What are you holding on to? What are you trusting in every day? You know, when you wake up and you have those panicky thoughts about everything you've got to do today, where do you reach? What are you holding on to? When you have those moments and all you are aware is how much you just failed again, what a terrible dad you are, what a terrible mom you are, what a terrible child you are, what a terrible friend you are, what a terrible worker you are, whatever you have in your head, how whatever those negative voices say about you, what are you holding firm to? The, the, the only unshakable thing we have are the promises, the truth of God and his word the truth of who he says he's made us to be in the gospel. That's what we hold firm to. That's why an elder is called to hold firm to give instruction in sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is anything that accords with this good word, this trustworthy word. That's sound doctrine, sound teaching, as opposed to insane teaching. (laughs) But you know, all of us are called to know the truth of scripture. This is a unique character qualification. This is a unique attribute or unique evidence that is given just to elders. An elder must be apt to teach. Not everyone has to be apt to teach or able to teach sound doctrine in a way that's clear and understandable that people get and understand and apply to their lives. But even though that is unique, the reason why is not. All of us need the sound word of the gospel. All of us need to hold firm. You know, the Great Commission that's given to each and every disciple of Jesus is to make disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus, teaching them to obey. So even though not everybody here in the church is called to teach in the sense that he's talking about here, to some degree, everyone is called to lead and teach someone. 
everyone, to some degree, is called to lead and teach someone. To some degree, you're called to teach others to obey everything Jesus commanded. How do you do that? How, do, how are we called to do that? I'm supposed to set the example. I can only do that as I'm holding firm to the trustworthy word of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what each and every one of us need to do. Hold firm to the trustworthy word of the gospel. That's the only thing that can help us in teaching them to obey everything that Jesus commanded. And, and that's, by the way, the grounds for it as well. You see, we're called to evidence, to give evidence of the transforming power of the gospel because all of us need the transforming power of the gospel. It's not just leaders. All of us need the transforming power of the gospel. Let's hold on to that. And and as you think about this list and all those things except for the last one, they all apply to every Christian here. But remember, that's not the grounds for our confidence in Christ. Our grounds for confidence is the good news of Jesus says, hey, you'll never be good enough on your own, but guess what? Jesus was good enough for you. He was perfect for you in your place. And by the way, not only was he perfect in your place, he died in your place so that he could give you all of his merit. And so you could be the righteousness of God in Christ. And so that now you are no longer slaves to sin, but now you're slaves to righteousness. That's the good news we hold on to. That's the good news we proclaim. That's our hope that he will transform each and every one of us day by day. Amen? Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your goodness.